This podcast is sponsored by NHS Lancashire and South Cumbria Integrated Care Board and Beacon Counselling Trust, promoting an open discussion about gambling-related harm and the destruction it can cause. If you're affected by anything you hear and would like to reach out, visit beaconcounselingtrust.co.uk. Let's keep talking. Welcome back to Football Untold, the podcast that explores the dark side of the beautiful game. Thanks once again for checking us out. We're on to uh, episode five of the series so far. Actually, we're going to do things a little bit different in episode in this episode because we're going to talk about uh, the stigma that exists around uh, talking about addiction, both within the game and then uh, across society more openly. When we say stigma, we mean views held uh, that maybe hold people back and stop people getting help. We've heard from each of the lads about how they all left it maybe a little too late to avoid the worst effects of addiction. So how can we change that so that footballers today and people in general know how and when uh, to get help? Once again, we've got the boys uh, in the studio. Uh, Mr. Clark Carlisle, I will start with you if that's okay. Um, and I'll also make the point that people will hear about the services that are available uh, across the course of the uh, the podcast as well, because the signposting around this is really important. Stigma is the thing that basically mean, means I can't talk about this. I mm-hmm. have to keep this to myself because if I do express something about it, negative things will come my way. And that can't be a good thing when we're talking about something so devastating as gambling addiction. There's got to be a point where we've got to push through that lower those limits so people feel like they can come forward and have a conversation about gambling. I totally agree. Totally agree, mate. And um, it, w- when we talk about stigma, it's quite an ethereal thing. You know, it's like, oh, um, there is a huge stigma in with regards to this issue in a workplace. What does that actually mean in reality? Well, what, what, there is no workplace that says you can't talk about this. What happens is someone goes into a workplace and because of the things that they see, because of the actions and responses that they witness, they perceive, they believe that they can't talk about this. Now, that's very different. It's very different not being allowed to talk about something to believing that you can't talk about something. And that's what we have to change. So we have to constantly and consistently evidence that it is okay to talk about things. Not only is it okay, you're expected to talk about certain things. So that that's the way that we're, we're going to have to address and unpackage it in the workplace. And uh, Can I give you an example, though? Yeah, go on, Simon Howard's in the studio as well. But say you came in today, you were playing five-a-side, mm-hmm. right? I'll rip you for this later on, don't worry. <laughs> but you were saying over your knee, like straight away you were like, look at the state of my knee. Yeah. Clark, last week, a week before... You had, a, you had an ankle issue and you talked about it almost like straight away. And I think people will do that, don't they? When they go, how are you feeling today? And you, and you will go, I've had, I've had this cold for ages now. And all those physical things are quite normal, aren't they? Yeah. To talk about. But actually, those mental health things, be it addictions or depression or any of those things, we keep all of those inside, don't we? Well, we'll gladly tell someone that we injured ourselves, particularly for you, because you know, you're, you're playing <laughs> for the first time in 10 years and you wanted everyone to know about it. Yeah, I think certainly from a male perspective, there's a big ego thing in that, isn't that? Um, can I admit my flaws? Can I look at myself? Men just want to just, you know, do what they th- think is right in front of their peers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think it's something the more the more education we can get out there, the more we talk about it. Hopefully, that'll make people more comfortable to actually talk about it. But it it's about when somebody feels right to do it, uh, Mick, because it, it's you know talking about gambling here to say to yourself. 
I'm flawed in this respect or I'm flawed in that respect or I'm in this mess, I'm in this. It's not easy, I think, from a male perspective to go and speak to somebody. Like Clark says, nobody's stopping you do that. It's, it's an inner, inner barrier, if you like. But in terms of, and I think you touched on this as well, in terms of your own experience, that knowledge that you've got an, uh, a problem, even before you realise or you can identify it as addiction, you must become aware that things are getting away from you to the point where... I think as a gambler, and maybe I'm right or maybe I'm wrong on this one, you have to sort of present yourself as being someone in the know, someone who has the inside track. Somebody, and I wonder whether or not part of the issue around the stigma around this is you have to admit at some point that you're not the guy in the know and you don't have the inside track and you maybe didn't have the knowledge you thought you have. So there's a second level that you've got to overcome before you kind of accept, okay, this has gone a little bit too far. Yeah, you can become that guy that has a tip, that guy that's known to be at the races. For me, I was known as coming into work with the racing posts, I'll know, and there you going here, you going there. So there's, a, there's an extra barrier, if you like. And I was out scouting a game not long ago and I'd seen somebody at a club from a long time ago and, how's your horses? Have you had any winners? And in that 10-year period, they hadn't, they hadn't realised where I was at, so I had to tell them. But that isn't comfortable for some people to still talk about it in that way. Um, and, and, and you're right, yeah, it, it, it's not an easy thing to overcome. What, can I ask what you said? Did you say, no, I don't do that anymore? Or? Yeah, I said, I don't do it anymore. Problem gambler, went through it, and I'm comfortable doing that, but there's still there's still big issues for people to come out and do that. I mean, we've we've recognised that from speaking to people about maybe coming on the podcast. Some people think they're ready and they're not ready, and they're still probably not, not well, if you like, and not ready to do that. So it's a difficult one because you want to encourage people to, to speak a lot sooner in the, in the journey, if you like, and, and help them get some help before they get to the end of that. But it, it, it isn't easy. And I just think it comes with education and losing some of that stigma, which is what we're talking about. I think there's something we've got to acknowledge about gambling <clears throat> that draws a huge distinction between, let's say, anxiety and depression or the, you know, the parallel you're drawing with physical ailments. If something happens to your physical body, it has happened to you. You can share that. It's something, you know, that is inconvenienced or is a consequence of something external. We're getting to the point of understanding that anxiety and depression is something, it's a, you know, it's, it takes a form of an illness. It happens to you. But with gambling, it, the, the way that it's positioned, people uh, gamble for fun, but by the time it's gotten to the point where it's causing you severe consequences, the reflection is on you. It's that I am engaging in a bad behaviour. I've been naughty. I am wrong. Now, that's a very different dynamic to have to share with someone. It's not, oh, this has happened to me. Can you, you know, understand and help? Oh, yeah, of course I can. But if it's gambling, it's like, oh, actually, I've been bad. I've been naughty. I've done something wrong. So it's almost a confession as opposed to sharing, you know, uh, an affliction of sorts. Now, that very different dynamic means that I'm not going to share it in my workplace. There is absolutely no chance that I'm going to go into work and say, I've been bad, I've been naughty. Um, (laughs) But what we have to uh, point these people to are the safe spaces where they can make that admission, if that makes sense, you know. So there's another point here where I actually don't think that people should go into their workplace every day and if you, you know, if I say, how are you? You say, well, actually, Clark, I've got a gambling addiction. I, I don't think that's right, you know, mm. because when you're in your workplace, there are professional boundaries. You know, you're there to do a job. But uh, 
it's kind of in tandem with that, the work and the, the environment that you're in must facilitate the opportunity for you to access a safe space where you can say that. Now, that's what we've got to point everyone who's currently experiencing it towards, and we've got to point organisations towards. Like, look, we know you, um, Bauer Media as a company, we don't expect you to fix Mick Coyle's psychological problems. We don't expect you to um, ask him to talk about them at work. But we do expect you to provide the facility for him to be able to talk about those things. That is within your, your remit. So that's the kind of change in the whole direction of supporting someone with, with adverse mental health, but especially gambling, where it's almost a confession of personal action. That's where we need to create that safe space and point people to it. I think that's dead interesting. And I think it's, it's worth worth pointing out, you know, the later stages of the series of the podcast, we spoke to a lot of people, Si, who... who talked about their stories and were keen to get involved as you made the point before but then held back and actually it's definitely worth saying that the the way to tackle a gambling addiction isn't on day one to announce it on day two to publicly declare it in a podcast you know let's make that absolutely clear that those conversations and you guys have been you know along your journeys and you're at the point in your journeys where you're you're able to to talk about that but we do want to say to people that it's about finding those spaces and that can be the anonymous helplines that can be reaching out to that to that phone number or that website and getting that support in that place i think as much as anything i wonder because a lot of people don't almost have the language we're not we don't we don't have the language do we to 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 say i failed or i've been bad or i've done the wrong thing it's it's quite a complex thing to get your head around. And of course, if you've not come from that space or you culturally don't understand that, you've never seen other people do it before, how would you know? We've, we've never been taught that that's how you approach the negative aspects of your own life. I certainly didn't have lessons in that growing up. And that's going to be, be the experience of so many people listening to this and beyond that they'll go, well, what is that first step? What does that first step look like? It's like Clark said, it's finding that safe place as well because you think of the gambler that's looking at themselves, they'll get to that stage where everybody else is telling them they've got a problem, but they, they deny it. And then they start to go, I think I've got a problem. I don't like what I'm seeing. But who do they talk to? Because a lot of the people around them will be affected by their gambling anyway. So do you go to your wife who knows there's an issue or there may be an issue. you've been lying to her? That's not comfortable. I've borrowed off a friend or stolen off a family member. I can't go to them. So it's finding that place where you can take... Um, take what you need to say and, uh, and go and deliver it in a comfortable, safe space. And as you said, there's no there's no practice to that. We're not taught what to do. And anyone that's had an initial therapy or first time in a GA, it's daunting. And mm. it, a lot of the time it takes you to get to a really dark place or breaking point to do that. We're trying to educate people to say it's safe and it's okay to do that a lot sooner. So we haven't got people, if you like, on, on the edge of the cliff of that journey. Can you can you say to someone, Clark, in a dressing room, hi, mate. I've noticed your behaviour's gone a certain way or I've noticed the gambling things picked up a little bit within a football dressing room. Could that conversation take... It'd have to come from a very senior place, Bang but, but how, how how would that... Can that play out in com in conversations in dressing rooms? I was talking about this today uh, and the, in football, it's such a hierarchical structure uh, that you, you have to have a certain amount of presence uh, and, and I don't know, what's the word I'm, uh, I would look for? Seniority within a dressing room to be able to um, 
directly intervene in someone's actions or let's say you know we're talking about culture try and establish a different norm within a dressing room if you're anything between the age of 16 if you're anything between the ages 16 and 25 nothing that you say is going to have any clout with anyone in the dressing room not because of the veracity of what you're saying or the good intentions behind it but because you haven't proven yourself in this dressing room so there are there are so many reasons why attempts for intervention are going to fail. Um, I, I have done it before, and I've done it from a place of compassion. But most importantly, I've done it from a place of where I had been there and the other person knew. So they didn't take offence at what I said. And the way that I, I always phrase it is, you know, I would see that. I've experienced that before, and it caused me a problem. How is it for you? So it's not like, oh, you, you're doing wrong. It's like, hey, I've done that. But when I was doing it, it was a real issue for me. You know, do you resonate with that? And I think that was a good way to break the ice. I think, see, I think that's a really simple way of talking. But actually just hearing it, Clark mm-hmm. say out loud, makes me go, oh, yeah, you would hear that and you would understand it without thinking, I, I, how dare this guy say this? Because actually what you're doing, you're offering something of yourself. Exactly. Yeah. You're doing it empathetic- empathetically. Yeah, I think there's still uh, conversations for senior staff within that. If we're talking about a football environment, um, if you like, members of staff, um, people beyond that, even at director and board level, because I still think, we talked about it in one of the other episodes, lads still fear that, am I going to be dropped? Am I going to be discarded? Am I going to be thrown to one side? So I think there can be a better conversation for education of, of, of managers and coaches and board members with regards to that, because I, I'm still not 100% convinced people wouldn't be judged for that if they don't go to the right person at the right time within that club. This podcast is sponsored by NHS Lancashire and South Cumbria Integrated Care Board and Beacon Counselling Trust. If you'd like to reach out, visit beaconcounsellingtrust.co.uk. We're talking stigma then on uh, Football Untold on uh, episode five of the series. Oh, Stephen Colker's here, by the way. He's back. Steve, great to see you. Thanks for uh, swinging by once again. Um, Steve's episode, by, uh, by the way, is available at episode four. It's a really fascinating insight into the, the life of Stephen Colker and the place he's at now and the way he looks back on his journey. So do check that out. Uh, you can subscribe to all the podcasts. So you touched on before um, finding the words to, to try and break the stigma and about the fact that some people don't even have the language to do so. Can you remember that, that first conversation and who it was with where you kind of went, look, you know that big plan I had to be you know, a horse racing tipster and all yeah. that kind of stuff. It It's all gone wrong. Can you remember what that was? Yeah, my conversation with a good friend. Um, and at first, even that conversation, whilst I felt comfortable, was still, I think I was still trying to defend a little bit of it until until we got into deeper conversations. So I was still going there trying to, with that ego in place, I guess. But as the conversation went, um, I opened up uh, and I had a look inside myself a little bit during the conversation. And I, I think luckily... The friend I did speak to was great in that in that situation. I think if he wouldn't have been, uh, and it was the wrong person I went to, I may have I may have kept being in denial with that. But luckily that opened up, and then obviously the next conversation was with the with the PFA, um, somebody there, and then went on to counselling and, and all the help you get through the PFA. But the initial one was with with a close friend who, who like I said, hadn't had any problems himself, but it, it seemed to work for me. It felt a safe place to go. And um, he helped break down a few of them barriers that, that I still had up at the beginning of the conversation. Did did it feel or does it feel at that point like you're admitting or you're you're having to or feel like you're admitting that you're you're failed as like an individual? I mean, this is a part of someone's life. It's a, it's it might be a big part of their lives, but it's only a part. It doesn't define 
hopefully someone's entire existence. How, how did how did that frame within your mind? Was that you admitting that that plan had gone wrong or that that side of your life, or did it feel like there was more to it? I still felt like a failure within that. That that still seemed to me like uh, I wasn't good enough. I was a failure. I'd got things wrong and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that, that, that was a, that was a tough conversation for me to admit. I think you spend a long time as an addict knowing it's the wrong thing. You're beating yourself up. I, there's a long process or there was for me of knowing it was, it was bad. I didn't like what I was doing, the lying, the deceit, everything else that comes with it. But then being able to actually get that out and speak to someone and, and admit you don't like the person you are um, and look at all, all your flaws and the things you've done. It's not an easy thing to do. It really isn't. And uh, that was, that was the challenge for me. I'd spent enough time looking within myself thinking, I don't like this this guy. He's got a problem. He's this, he's that. But who do I tell? And who's going to, again, maybe from the football background, who's going to say it's okay and give me a pat on the back for it? <laughs> Still looking for that affirmation of it almost. So um, th- that's kind of how it was for me. Uh, Steve, in, ter- in terms of yourself, when, you, when you're when you in those sort of cycles of uh, the, the habit kicks in and it comes with like a journey, you, you talked about the fact, you know, it involved getting on a plane and going to, you know, to Cyprus to, to take part in casinos uh, over there. When you were getting on that plane, were you thinking, oh, what am I doing getting on this plane? Or were you thinking, here we go. At, at the start, does it feel like it's going to be a good trip, that good things can come from that moment? And then and then does it descend at that point? Always feels like it's going to be a good trip. Always. I always go with a belief that I'm going to win and I'm going to win the jackpot. You know, that's, that, that's always how it started. Uh, how it ended was with me curled up, hung over, uh, on a flight, um, don't want to speak to anyone, hood up, just praying that no one recognises me and, and starts a conversation regarding anything to do with football or or anything full stop, really. It was just a, a, a really sort of brutal time, but but always, always started with hope, with a belief. Um, Even like the next time. So would you, would you then deliberately forget that negative the next time it was happening? I wouldn't say it's deliberate. I'd say it's just part of the illness. You know what I mean? Mm. It just naturally happens. I just forget that... that that I lose every time, basically, because I'm a compulsive gambler. So even when I win, I can't walk away. So there is no logic to me gambling. You know, I've had crazy sums of money on the table in in the green, and I've continued to play because that's what I do. All it ever is is just more money to gamble. And in terms of that conversation, I know you've had sort of different managers, managers you've got on with, managers that you maybe haven't, you know, had that same sort of relationship with. Was it someone within the game that you talked about your problems or was it someone outside of the game where that where that really sort of took off? No, someone outside of the game, for sure. Um, I mean, look, I know there's a lot of conversations around speaking to coaches, speaking to player care, speaking to the psychologists of the club. Uh, for me, uh, I never advise any young player to do that. Um, and I know that may be insulting to a few people and um, I apologise to the, to, the, to the people that are offended but uh, it's just my experience it's, it's my truth you know what what's happened in, in my life in, in, in my experiences those who I've told within football um, have used it against me so uh, you know I'm not going to stand there and tell a youngster to go and do that I'll say look outside of outside of the club uh, I can even guide you for, for support and help you know the same people that help me I, I give to them and that seems to work um, I would love to love for football to change but uh, I don't think it's going to happen overnight that, that's exactly what you were saying. It's about that that pathway has got to exist, doesn't it? And actually, mm-hmm. for some, it will look like path A. For some, it will be path B. But we might be C, D, E, F, G, H, 
and beyond down the line before someone goes, this is the thing which is right for me. And I'm not talking about they try it for a bit and then it stops. I'm talking about getting through that first door, that mm-hmm. first step. Those options have got to be open. So you think, well, I might go down the route of the, might be the PFA or it might be Gamblers Anonymous or the Sporting Chance or one of those sort of institution type organisations. But it might be a conversation with someone within a club, but it might be someone within your community. It might be a family member. It could be a lot of different people it's one of the greatest difficulties in addressing it in especially within football because football likes single strand solutions they want this is the answer it's going to work for everyone well unfortunately when we're talking about addressing problem behaviors addressing mental health issues there are seven billion people which means there are seven billion different solutions what's worked for corks may not work for me although we do have a a lot of resonance and similarities that, that have gone on in our experiences to find out what works for every individual is time-consuming and it's costly. And football clubs haven't got the time and don't want to spend the money on making you better if they know that they can spend less money and buy someone in who is, you know, isn't presenting any of the problems that you're presenting them with. And that's why that stigma persists in a dressing room, you know. Uh, I said it at the top at the top of the show. Stigma is about what I perceive will be your response if I share something with you. And the reason I get that is from the evidence that I see from what's happened before. And Cook said, so "What was the response of football when you shared publicly what was going on with you drinking and gambling?" Well, it wasn't very good, as I, as I can tell you. I spent um, well. I went back to QPR. Um, what went down there is is you know I can't disclose it, but but following on from from my time at QPR, I was then out of football for for best part of a year. You know, Dundee was my only option, and um, and then following on from that, seventy odd teams had told me no, so that I wasn't allowed back in the changing room, um, even on trial. So, so that this is a guy who's got international caps, you know, who's played an incredible amount of games. He's he's got such quality and caliber and experience. But because he's voiced one period of adversity that he's managing, he's now untouchable for 72 of the 92 clubs. That, that's utterly absurd. That evidences to the wider footballing community. You know, I, I know that there will have been hundreds of players who are maybe going through, um, you know, difficulties at that point. And they know Corks, they know the player he is, they know his experience. And then they're looking in the summer and they're like, this guy can't get a club. He can't get a club in England, all because he shared, you know, that what, what he's going through. Why am I going to do that? Because I haven't got any international caps. I didn't play 40 games last season. You know, what? what's the likelihood that football's going to look after me? So if that's the perception, no wonder guys are feeling the stigma and they're not reaching out. And actually, and this is a really important point that actually, from from a footballing point of view, as a section of as a section of society, there will be footballers with a gambling problem because there are people across wider society with a gambling problem. But actually, what we've touched on there is something we actually will probably explore in the, in the next episode about whether or not actually there are specifics to football there that's almost a little bit institutionalized. Things that we can do something about, or things that we can highlight things that we can hold a mirror up to and say, look, this is happening. This is the experience of players within the game today. I mean, firstly, I agree with Corks. I don't I don't think senior staff, coaches, managers, I'm with Corks. I don't think you can go to them. I don't think they're educated enough and aware of it and in a position where they really want to help you. I'm, I'm, I'm still quite 
you know aggressive towards that. I don't think the help is there. I think they want to tick the box and look like it is, but I'm not so sure it is. But it needs to be. It it does need uh, for a young player to not be able to go to his manager, or his coach, or his player liaison and get the right response is really disappointing. But I I believe it isn't right. Um, some clubs may so you know if, if I've got it wrong, but in general. I still think there's a stigma amongst amongst them, um, first and foremost. And outside in in the bigger world, be interesting, Mick, from listeners and what feedback we get. You know, does it happen in the corporate world? I suggest it does. There may be some that have got their their shopping order and and, and things are a lot better. But I'd imagine you'll get similar environments, especially in male dominated environments. Well, I'll just ask you one last question, Steve. Um, you mentioned when we, we we shared your story about being twelve, thirteen, then fifteen. You know been in rehab at 90 what what age for you is the age that young players male and female should sit down and be told about what might be coming their way because from you from your point of view if it had been 17 that would have been way way too late but equally you might say well do you do it with 11 and 12 year olds what age for you is the right sort of age that you would sit down with young young people young professionals probably within football clubs and say here are some here are some pits that are going to come your way here's Here's how to recognise them and not fall into them. I think it's a tough question because the answer would actually go back to what Clarkie said about, you know, everyone is different. So I think you could have told me at 15 and I'd have gone whatever. We probably wouldn't have, have sunk in. You know what I mean? Whereas you could tell some 15-year-olds and they'll be like, wow, I don't want to be anywhere near that. Um, so I, I think it's possible to put a, an age on it. I think for me, you'd have to probably go as young as 12. You would actually have to go as young as that age to sort of maybe make an impact. And even then, I, I don't know how I would have would have reacted. But I just want to sort of go back on something Sai said there. Um, it's actually probably a question for you, actually. Is You know, we talk about, there about the clubs and, and mm. the clubs um, having to, you know, you can't trust them or, or whatever's going on, right? But but how can they like how how can they do better you understand like this is this is the point for me is like because because i've sounded like um maybe that i'm sort of digging out the clubs well after mm. so many clubs told me no da, 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 and all that but but actually um do they have the time do the managers nowadays have the time to go you know what i'm going to take care of of stephen cork i'm going to take time out my day to take care of him because they're under pressure they're about mm. you see it now managers get sacked after three or four games so is it just a oh it's the club's problem or is it a we problem I think it's a bit of a wee problem. I think that there, there definitely has to be more education there. You know, again, I know people are going out and doing talks and different things and quite often the staff will be, we haven't got time to, to sit in on that lived experience chat and things like that. And I think they need to. Um, but as Clark said, it, sometimes it's financially easier to replace somebody. Um, but you've got to, there's got to be that player care thing. Maybe we go beyond the manager and look at board level because they sign a lot of the checks to this, don't they? Can we, can we educate them in, in you know, helping somebody it, it, it's no point just replacing people. There, there's, there's got to be a bigger picture and a bigger care. There's enough money in the game, I think, to take care of players better than that. And I do still think it's disappointing if a young boy, 18, 19, 20, can go to somebody within the staff or above that and not say he's got a problem without thinking, that's the end of my contract, that's the end of my involvement in the first team. I just think we have to move on from that. I just think we do. I tell you what, there's plenty to get into. We'll, we'll get into that as part of the live show. Uh, we'll do the mm. next episode, which is available same time next week. Uh, you can check out the uh, Football Untold podcast feed. Thanks for your streams and thanks for your download for this series so far. We've got another edition of the podcast to come. Um, thanks to uh, Simon Howarth, to Clark Carlisle, uh, and Stephen Colker for this week's edition. Don't forget, you can drop your social media messages using the hashtag Football Untold and head to the website footballuntold.co.uk. 
This podcast is sponsored by NHS Lancashire and South Cumbria Integrated Care Board and Beacon Counselling Trust, promoting an open discussion about gambling-related harm and the destruction it can cause. If you've been affected by anything you've heard and would like to reach out, visit beaconcounselingtrust.co.uk. Let's keep talking.